Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. This is episode 31, originally recorded live on August 26, 2011. Forming and maintaining a community of humanists presents a specific set of challenges. In this episode, Rabbi Shalom looks at the challenges that face a humanistic community and how to tackle those challenges. Kol Hadash has always maintained the opinion that we are a community that is based on philosophy rather than region. And podcast listener, I invite you to consider joining Kol Hadash as an out-of-town member. More information can be found on the web at kolhadash.com. There's a story about how the Jewish people began. It's a well-known story. People tell it all over the world. It begins with a man named Abraham, who had a son named Isaac, who had a son named Jacob. That son Jacob had many adventures, and many sons, and many wives, eventually having 12 sons. In an encounter with an angel, he receives a new name. He turns from Jacob to Israel, the wrestler with God. His 12 sons, led by Joseph, go down into Egypt, and there they settle. They become a great nation in Egypt, 12 tribes making up this nation. And then they are thrown into slavery, And then they are freed, and they leave slavery. They wander in the desert for 40 years. They receive commandments. They receive a Torah, a constitution, a set of laws and teachings. They receive a distinctive national religion that defines who they are. And finally, after 40 years of wandering, they enter the promised land, conquer it, and become a real nation, the chosen nation. Now that's the story. Let me tell you the history of how the Jewish people began. And you'll see how it relates to the story. In the land known as Canaan, Canaan, there was a split in the society between the coastal cities which were developed, and if not cosmopolitan, at least more advanced in civilization, and the hill country made up of hard scrabble farmers and wandering shepherds. In this hill country, a new kind of culture and religion began to develop. It chose one of the gods from the Canaanite pantheon. The chief god was a sky god named El, and he had a series of sons underneath him, one of whom was named Baal, master, one of whom was named Yahweh, sometimes referred to as the Lord. They even had a consort wife named Asherah, over whom they fought. And the Hill Country people chose the god Yahweh as their god, and they began to develop into a national identity. Of course, they began as clans and tribes. And some tribes were in the north, like Manasseh and Ephraim, and some tribes were in the south, like Judah and Benjamin. And they found affinities with each other, and imagined one way to connect themselves would be to claim that, in fact, they were all related. You do this in many primitive cultures. In Bedouin tribes, we've seen this, for example. You create what's called an eponymous ancestor. We're not simply allies. We're brothers because we share a father or we share a mother. And now you can see how the 12 tribes coalesce around mothers, Leah and Rachel and the handmaids, and then ultimately around a father whose name is the name of the nation and that is Israel. Israel. Now what the history shows us 
is that the Jewish people have always been many, have always been diverse. It was from many into one, not from one into many. And we've always disagreed. There are stories in the books of Judges of battles and wars between the tribes. One of the oldest pieces of Jewish literature is a piece called the Song of Deborah. It appears in the book of Judges. After the story of Deborah, you have it retold in song, but actually the song is probably older. And the song says, why did this tribe stay by the, ship, by the ships? Why did this tribe not come to fight with us? They're already complaining about each other. You know, you hear sometimes in the organized Jewish world that there are three things that unite all Jews. God, Torah, and Israel. It's what all Jews have in common. But in my experience, nothing divides Jews more than God, <laughs> Torah, and Israel. Who is Israel? Who counts as Israel? What does it mean to follow the Torah or to study the Torah? How much should you follow or do you have to follow? What do you mean by God? Is there a God? Well, okay. You can see there's a wide range of perspectives. Or you can remember the story about the congregation that can't remember what to do at a certain point in the service. I've told this a couple of times. Where there's an argument. Some stand and some sit and they yell at each other. So they go to the oldest man in town and they ask him, what are we supposed to do at this point of the service? And the people who stand say, we should stand, right? And he says, no, that's not the tradition. Should we sit then? No, that's not the tradition. Well, right now, half stand and half sit and everybody else. That's the tradition. <laughs> now, when people try to find humanistic Judaism, I found in my experience they have a very big obstacle to overcome. It's to imagine that what we do is even possible. After all, if you're a secularized Jew who has a feeling of Jewish community and wants to connect with other Jews, but wants it to be built around learning history and philosophy and culture and celebrating Jewish life, but not necessarily around traditional prayers or rituals or beliefs, he or she will say to themselves, what are the odds that there's someone else like me out there? Let alone, what are the odds that there's a whole community of people like me that have actually built something like this? No, that's not possible. And so they don't even look. Now, I've heard plenty of stories of people who find us and say, oh, I felt like this for 30 years. And those stories drive me crazy. <laughs> because on one hand, it's great that you found us. But on the other hand, we were here. And you didn't find us. And it's, it's too bad for you that you didn't have the sense of community. It's too bad for us that we're doing something wrong, that you're not finding us. But part of it is even accepting the possibility that we're there, because some give up before they start looking. Now, what does it take to make a humanistic Jewish community? Well, we have a lot of challenges. After all, we're individuals. We believe what we believe as individuals. We make up our own minds. So who am I as a rabbi to tell you what to think? In fact, many people say, I'm opposed to organized religion. I like to think for myself. And so I remind them, we're not that organized. <laughs> but I also tell them that part of our community is about being different and being yourself. It's, again, out of many into one. We have very different interests and tastes. We have different styles. Some people love responsive readings. Some people hate responsive readings. Get, welcome to my challenge, because <laughs> I'm going to try and build a service out of This service was a lot about poetry. My wife would have hated it, because she likes more prose. That's fine. We have to find ways to address all of these in ways that feel meaningful. We have different personalities. Well, that's not unique to us, of course. Every Jewish community has that challenge. 
But we also have a challenge of what I would call a limited central authority. I am not the arbiter of what you do with your life. My job is as resource, as God. I'm supposed to be the expert in Jewish life, just as some of you may be the experts in dental medicine, or library science, or the law, or English literature. I don't have to be an expert in everything. I'm the expert for this, and I'll rely on you when I'm going to other areas of expertise. But that doesn't mean I tell you what to do. In fact, we've created such an egalitarian community that it's sometimes challenging for me to maintain the barrier between professional and private. I once got a phone call on New Year's Day from a member who was looking for the phone number of the humanistic rabbi in Washington, D.C. And I said, okay, I'll look it up. It was about 10 in the morning, so I, I didn't just hang up the phone right away. And I looked up the number, I gave her the number, and she said, is that his home number? Because I don't want to bother him on the holiday. <laughs> I said, no, that's his cell. He'll, he'll answer or not if he wants to. Uh, she called me at my home number. <laughs> but you see, for her, it's a family. It's a community. This, for her, is not a professional thing. It's a thing of love. And so I understood that dynamic, and so I didn't get upset, even though from now on I left my cell phone, I left my cell phone in the directory, and not necessarily the home phone. <laughs> well, we have a number of strengths to build on, with all those challenges, in creating a sense of community. The first is there's a deep Jewish tradition of community. I mentioned the Beit El, the house of God, turning into the Beit Knesset, the house of meeting, or the Beit Midrash, the house of study. In the end, the ceremony was about being together, not necessarily being directly in connection with one's God. Remember, there are several prayers you're not allowed to say by yourself. You have to have a minion, a quorum, of a certain number of other people to be with for those kind of ceremonies. But it goes beyond the religious rituals. There's a tradition called the Kehila, the Jewish community that organizes and taxes itself and supports itself. A tradition of tzedakah, of charity giving, to support those in need. The tradition of volunteer, we're called the Chevras in Eastern Europe. The most famous is the Chevra Kadisha, the one that works with the dead, but there was a Chevra for the soup kitchen, and a Chevra for the collections, and a Chevra for providing dowries for uh, widows and for orphan brides, so they could get married too. This was a tradition of supporting each other through human action, not just through prayer and hope. And there's also a sense of communal responsibility. There's a phrase that's used sometimes for good and sometimes for evil. The phrase is, Kol Yisrael Arevim All of Israel is responsible one for the other. Now it's being used for evil when it's being used to impose other people's religious standards on you. After all, if you're not keeping kosher, if you're not observing Shabbat, if you're not putting on tefillin, if you're not shaking the lulav on the etrog on Sukkot, well, all of Israel is responsible one for the other, so I better get you to do it. That's one model. Of course, on the other side, in the positive views, all of Israel's responsible for each other means we're all in the same boat. We're all pulling on the same team. We're all there for each other. And that's a strength for us in creating community that the general humanist world doesn't have because they come from many backgrounds and many traditions and coming together as a group, they have the individuals, but they don't have the sense of roots and community that we do. A second strength that we have is we have a conscious focus on ethics and the human consequences of behavior. We spend a lot of time on personal philosophy, on how you choose what you do, and what's important in life. We have no get-out-of-jail-free card for divine deliverance, for miraculous intervention, for healing, for divine forgiveness. In the end, I have to watch my own behavior, 
and how I treat other people. Because nothing else is. I'm keeping score. And we're keeping score. And we have to relate to each other. And the third strength that we have is a paradox. We are not your neighborhood synagogue. We are not just like all the others. We are different in very important and distinct ways. And so what we find is the people who are attracted to that, the people who are interested in joining that, turn out to be very interesting people. I once asked a member of another humanistic congregation, why do we get such interesting people in this congregation? And she told me, it's because of what we're about. You see, we're a congregation of an idea. It's not for prestige. It's not for social acceptance or the easy carpools. In fact, if it was easy carpools, we'd have a lot more members. <laughs> no, it's for the sense of being part of something larger, being part of something important. The people who joined us are committed to values. They're choosing to join this and not whatever's there. Now, what makes us different from just a school or just a community center, just coming to a service or coming to a program or taking a class at an adult learning center? Well, we call ourselves a congregation. We congregate. We come together. We feel together. We have regular services and celebrations. We offer pastoral care and support through difficulties and illness and death. We have a positive philosophy of life that helps us deal with tragedy and helps us celebrate joyous times. We're not just activities. We're a community. And we're a cause. People support us not because of what they personally get out of us. I've used the example a few times that I personally support Amnesty International not because I imagine I'm ever going to use their services. I don't imagine that I'll be in prison somewhere in the third world that I'll need Amnesty to intervene for me. Or Doctors Without Borders. I mean, the healthcare system would really have to get bad in this country for Doctors Without Borders to get involved. But I support the work that they do. I like that they exist. I, I value their values. And that's why many of our members find us because they like that we exist, they like the voice that we provide, they find a sense of meaning in celebrating with us if it's once a year, or seven times, or 17 or 70 times a year that they find a connection with us. They're here because of who we are, and they love that we exist. So what, are the DNA, what is the DNA of this community that makes it work? Well, first and foremost, we're a community of ideas. We explore and debate, we don't have a dogma, in fact, our joke is our only dogma is that we have no dogma, but we're very dogmatic that we have no dogma. Well, the truth is, in fact, we do have certain beliefs that we share. We believe in the importance of human responsibility, that we must take responsibility for our actions, that nothing else beyond us is going to take responsibility for the world around us to intervene. We believe in the power of human knowledge to understand ourselves, to explore the past, and the importance of knowing the truth, knowing the story of Abraham but also knowing the, knowing the real history of where we came from is important, too. Now, we believe that we are right, but we know that others can look at the same world with very different conclusions. There's a story, again, I've told once or twice, about a man living in a small Bible-believing community who is questioning whether or not there's a God, and so he goes out into the woods, and he looks up in a field, and he says, God, if you're there, show me a sign. And shooting star goes right across the sky. And he says, wow, what a coincidence. <laughs> well, what that means is you can read the evidence either way. You can look at that history or that story and decide to believe one or the other. Now, we have important questions that we would ask, but we understand that people can believe differently. 
Now, for a community of ideas, we really go back to the original meaning of the term a humanist, going back to the Renaissance. A humanist was interested in all kinds of knowledge. And when we look at knowledge, we look at not only intellectual or historical explorations, but also personal experience and emotion. Those are kinds of human knowledge, too. We sometimes get the bad rap of being too rational, too reasonable. We don't feel anything. Well, humanists feel a lot. If we're going to be human, we have to respond to all of the human experience, which includes emotion, which includes needs and desires. I had a talk just this week with someone who said, there's something I miss in your services. When I go to a reform or conservative service, there's a part called the Mishaberah, where you can say a prayer for the people who are sick. And even though I don't think it does any good, it's not going anywhere, it, ma it makes me feel good because I feel so helpless when they're sick. And I'm at a stage of life now when all of my friends seem to be sick with something or other. And I want a way to respond to that. And I said to her, it's good that you express that need. Because that's a human need, that feeling of helplessness, that desire to do something. That's very human. So now our question is, how do we meet that need? Is it by visiting someone in the hospital? Is it by writing them a letter? Is it by helping them with their will? Is it by taking their mind off their own? There are a lot of ways we can do that and feel less helpless. But if we refuse to acknowledge the emotion, if we just say, well, they're looking for magic power and forget it, then we're not truly being a humanist and responding to the entire human being and all of their needs and desires and complications. After all, to be humanist is to, to be human is to be rational, but to be irrational is also very, very human. Now, if we focus on what we can know about the human experience, not what we guess, if we're willing to say, I don't know, when we really don't know, then we have to share knowledge with each other. We have to discuss and debate. We have to pursue the world of ideas to truly understand who we are and what we do, because we just don't know everything. And that's the second piece of our DNA. Not just that we have a sense of shared beliefs and a community of ideas, but we are not always of the same idea. We agree to disagree. You know the old joke about two Jews and three opinions in four synagogues? Well, when it's humanistic Jews, even more so. Now, once we've accepted that our information about the world is human knowledge, and we admit that human knowledge is limited, and that should give us some humility to understand that all of our knowledge is a compilation of your knowledge and your knowledge and your knowledge and my knowledge. We're not right all the time. We don't have all the answers. Now, I like to spend time talking about what we do know. I don't want to spend a lot of time focused on what we can't know, what we can't do. That's not self-affirming, that's not exciting and inspirational. But if we admit at the extremes that we don't know, then we have to admit that maybe you're right and maybe I'm right. Now, when I talk with people with whom I disagree, I can try to persuade them. I'm not always going to succeed. Sometimes I want to understand their perspective and see where they're coming from. I'm not going to give them the easy out. Well, I guess it's your opinion. I'll push them. And they can push me. And that's a relationship of equals. That's a dialogue of dignity. That's saying, you have your beliefs, I have mine, let's hash it out. Let's see what we can find together. Not by agreeing easily. But maybe if we agree to disagree after a discussion, I'll know more about what I believe, you'll know more about what you believe, maybe we'll change. Maybe we won't but we'll know even more strongly why we believe what we do. For a successful community, that's how we should work. The most important part of our DNA that makes us a warm and loving and supportive community 
is that the point is people. Our most important principle, the focus of our community is on the human level. People sometimes think when you go to a humanistic synagogue, you're going to say all the traditional things and just say anti-God. Blessed are you, no God, not king of the universe, who didn't do this, who doesn't do that. That gets old. Some tried it, but it didn't work. What we do is we change our focus. Instead of looking up, we look here. Instead of imagining beyond, we focus here, and on you, and on me. That song, Eifo Ori, Where's My Light? It's in me and in you. That's what we need to focus on. That's where we are. The point is people. What do people need? How should we treat people? How do we balance our priorities with theirs? And of course, not just people, but the natural world and humanity and animals and all the other phenomena that we experience in this life, which is the only life that we know. As humanistic Jews, the point for us is people. Caring for and respecting all people. So all the more so should we care for the people in our community with whom we share so much. Families are valuable for many reasons. They support us, they nurture us and give us love, but they also train us in how to relate to other people. It's an ethical training ground. I see my son and my daughter sometimes learning how to share, slowly, <laughs> painfully, <laughs> fits and starts, but they're learning how to relate to each other. If it's true for families, it's true for our community too. How we treat each other is the test of how seriously we take our convictions. If you say to yourself, I respect all people, but in real life, in actual person-to-person -person relationships, you don't respect people, then what's the point? If you claim to aspire to ethical awareness on the big scale and you step on people on the small scale, then what's the point? The point for us should be people. Well, what does it mean to have a humanistic Jewish community? It's building bonds between individuals and families and neighborhoods. It's a progressive dinner where we join each other in homes and travel to other families' homes and meet people we've never met before. It's high holidays where we see everyone and people we never see. It's name tags that have our names so we can say hello, John, hello, Susie. It's little events, a small Shabbat with eight people, a large Passover dinner with a hundred, a Sunday school class, a Sunday school-wide celebration. It's all of these ways of building connections one to the other. It's family friends over decades. It's raising children together. That's a community. I want to take you back to that congregation that stands and sits and yells at each other. We are a diverse congregation, not that diverse. <laughs> we haven't gone that far yet. Some of us like using Hebrew. Others are attached to Yiddish. Some of us are Jews. Some of us were not born Jews but feel that they are Jews now. Others remain as they were born and are fully welcome for who they are. Some are politically liberal. Some are individualist and libertarian. Some are still more conservative. But we are one congregation. We live our own lives within humanistic Judaism. And most importantly, we don't take it for granted. It was not a miracle that brought Kol Hadash into being. It was human effort and human ingenuity, human creativity and human courage, and a lot of legwork and a lot of folding and a lot of stuffing and a lot of time and a lot of love that made it happen. Building and maintaining a humanistic Jewish community is hard work. It takes all of these things. We remember to say thank you, and remember to value what we have. After all, the point is people.
This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening.